Hey, 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 film fans! Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Wednesday, November 20th, 2019. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, and yes, we're back already. Apparently, that's how we do it here. We wait a month and a half to do one show, and uh, then we're back on in back-to-back weeks. Anyways, excited to be here, and very excited to be joined by my new official co-host of the show. You know him. He's been here before. He is Mr. Mike Nichols. Thank you for joining me tonight, sir, and thanks for being here. It's it's nice to have someone who is as passionate as I am about film joining me uh, on a semi-regular basis. So, uh, you doing good today? Yeah, man. It was it was a tough day. I think you know. Yeah. I had a project at work that uh, did not get saved for some reason, and I had to spend the entire day redoing it. But I appreciate that you've brought me here to talk film with you. Always cheers me up. And you've liquored me up. So... Oh. Yes. So we're good. Yes. Well, that's what we do here at the Second Day Film Podcast. Mm-hmm. If you show up to talk movies, we'll make yeah. sure to have a drink ready for you. We're that's here right. to brighten up your day. Yes, we We are. hope we can brighten up your day uh, here at the Second Day Film Podcast. The winter months are starting to roll in here in Michigan. Uh, the yeah. darkness sets in early. The depression sets in. But at least we have film. We can always go to the theater and escape into different worlds for a couple hours. That's why we love movies. Uh, Coming up here on the show today, both Mike and I will be talking about some of the films we've seen recently, um, including a couple on Netflix that you can check out, so you can go watch them right after we talk about them. Uh, There will be some spoilers um, in regards to some of the films we're talking about today, so if you haven't seen them and you hear the title, uh, you might want to go check them out before coming back. But before we get into the films, we want to tell you how to get in touch with us. Um, Please like our Facebook page, that's at Second Day Film Podcast. Mike just so graciously invited all of his Facebook friends to the page, so we appreciate that he did that. If you are a fan of the page and you've been following us for a long time, if you would go and invite some of your friends to like the page, you know, if you like what you're hearing, if you like what you see on the page, invite some of your friends. Share the wealth. That's at the Second Day Film Podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Second Day Film. That's all written out in Second Day Film. We're on Instagram at the Second Day Film Podcast. And you can check out some of our old episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. And as I said last episode, last week, I'm in the process of getting us on Spotify, which is where, you know, some of y'all like to check out podcasts these days, apparently. So basically on social media, search Second Day Film. You'll find us. We should pop up. We appreciate you listening here today. All right, let's get to the movies. The first film we're going to talk about here today is a film called Jojo Rabbit. It's a satirical black comedy directed by Taika Waititi, who many of you will may, may know from uh, Thor Ragnarok. This film stars an ensemble cast led by Roman Griffin Davis in the title character, also Scarlett Johansson, Rebel Wilson, Stephen Merchant, Taika Waititi himself, Elfie Allen, and Sam Rockwell appear in this film. The plot summary on IMDb. A young boy in Hitler's army finds out his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their home. So, uh, as I just said, this is a satirical dark comedy. I have not seen this film. I planned to go see it last night, but did not get to it, so it'll be on the upper end of my two-watch list. But Mike has seen this film. So, Mike, what the hell is Jojo (laughs) Rabbit? Oh, man. It's a very, very funny uh, satirical dark comedy. I really loved this movie. Um, I thought it was full of heart. Um, this movie basically has a little boy who is just gung-ho about being Hitler Youth. As, like, a lot of kids in that, in that generation were. Like, they were just raised in this. They were, you know, the truth was kept in the dark from them. They were just kids being raised in this. They didn't really know anything better. And this kid imagines Hitler, uh, played brilliantly by, um, by, (laughs) by Taika Waititi, as his invisible, like, imaginary friend. And almost like a, a really dark version of Calvin and Hobbes, in, in a way. And uh, this kid is just gung-ho about it. And then he's, uh, you know, an injury happens, so he's forced to stay home uh, from camp that summer, basically. And then he gets uh, to discover that his mother is hiding a, a young Jewish girl in the attic. And this kid must now wrestle with, you know, the, his conflicting feelings for his best friend, Hitler who, you know, uh, what, what can he do to protect Hitler from this evil, 
you know, girl who must be destroying the world, and and then you know him actually getting to know the girl and realizing that you know his little best imaginary friend may uh, may be full of crap. <laughs> um, it's a really like I under, some people were very bothered by this movie, and I can understand why it might feel uncomfortable to watch a movie where you're watching Nazis and it's just it's kind of played off as silly, ridiculous stuff, which. You know, I, I love stuff like Monty Python and, uh, you know, Mel Brooks. So I'm, I'm used to kind of seeing Nazis portrayed like that. And it's like, you know, it doesn't offend me. Um, and also I would just remind everyone that the, the director and writer and the man playing Hitler himself is, is Jewish. So, you know, um, may, maybe just be a little bit more open-minded about it. Well, that's what um, I'm confused about. Why would people who are going to see this movie, which is clearly a satirical black comedy. We, yeah. we talked about a film, The Death of Stalin, that we both oh, like. I love that movie. Same yeah. thing. There's a lot of disturbing stuff being portrayed on screen, but it's done in a satirical way. Why would people be offended about a movie where they know that it's going to be making fun of them? From what I've read right now, I think people who are very concerned about the rise of Nazism that we're kind of seeing happen in American culture, a lot of like you know white pride crap, I think people are concerned that a movie that humanizes Nazis might be interpreted as something saying, well, Nazis can be good people. And that's really not what the film is. It's not justifying Nazism, which I think is what some people were concerned it might do. But I think that the film is, is full of humanity. And, and I think the director, you know, he wrote it. I think he's just so filled with seeing everybody as a human being. And, you know, it's also a very specific. It's dealing with the, the kids who grew up in it. You know, they're not the ones instigating it. They're just the kids who are just kind of stuck in this moment, you know. And um, and it's also about how a kid could learn to think differently, too. Right. Like, it's like, hey, like, what would change someone's mind out of being a Nazi? Which is actually a very beautiful, um, and, uh, like, it's a very human movie. Well, it's, it, it's full of heart. This movie. Well, I, you, can't, you can't help it and not just feel, like, kind of inspired and happy. Yeah. I, I really loved it. Well, and as much as people want to you know, pretend like these things weren't going on in the 1940s. Let's be honest, people were straight up brainwashed in Nazi Germany. I mean, yeah. kids like this, they grew up in a culture where it was hate the Jews. Listen to everything Hitler said. Listen yeah. to, you know, this is the right way of things. I'm, list I'm reading a book right now called In the Garden of Beasts by um, Eric Larson. Mm -hmm. And it's a book about uh, the, the U.S. ambassador to Germany in the years leading up to World War II. And in the book, they're talking about how a lot of the Americans that were over there were originally sympathetic to the German cause because on the surface, yeah. when you're looking at it, Hitler's mm -hmm. doing great things for Germany. He's bringing them out of the, the Depression. He's 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 making things look in the direct, right direction. On the surface, yeah. it doesn't look like this evil is going on. But he of was, course, he what was we know now, man of the year, right. which is crazy to think about. Which, of course, now we know that there's this evil underbelly bubbling right. up. What I'm wondering with this movie is, is it very much in the perspective of the main character, uh, Jojo, played by uh, Roman Griffith Davis? I mean, how much outside perspective do we get? Or are we really seeing this world through his eyes? Um, we see the world through <clears throat> his eyes, but it's clearly shown that the way this kid interprets things is not healthy. Uh, you know, it's and I think uh, we the cast of characters, you kind of mentioned, they are amazing. Um and they do such a good job of also showing the ridiculousness of just complete, like, devotion to the state. Uh, there's an amazing little just physical bit I love where uh, everyone has to say Heil Hitler to each other. Like, oh, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. Like, they all just keep going around, and then a new person walks down, and they all have to do it again. And it's like, it is just so ridiculous, like, the amount of devotion. It clearly points out the ludicrousness of, you know, what was happening with the Nazi party. And it's it's very funny. It's a great cast. Uh, I think Scarlett Johansson does an amazing job as the mom. Like, really just, just really gripped me, her performance especially. There's a really sweet scene where she, um, the son is upset with her, and she pretends to be the son's dad, who has been away. And it just shows, like, how hard it is what she's going through. Um, and it's just like a little classic moment in film, that moment for me, where she, she plays with her son as the dad. Like... I don't know what was special about it, but that moment, like, think think about that moment, like, if you reflect on the film and just, like, just let that moment stay with you. That's a really special moment. So this movie comes off as more comedy, or is there a serious undertone to it? <clears throat> it's very, very funny and silly, kind of in the little, like, bizarre-centric humor that he has. Like, you see it a lot in Thor Ragnarok. You definitely see it in another amazing movie he did. Uh, called What We Do in the Shadows. Mm -hmm. I but, mentioned Hunt for the Wilder People earlier. Yeah, yeah. But TD definitely has a very quirky, specific oh, style. Yeah. And this is their, like, you know, this is their 100%. Um, 
But yeah, the 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 serious moments really kind of hit you. But they're not serious in the sense that they're something like these little like preachy about like the wrongs of, of Nazism. It's just they're just moments where it suddenly makes you realize like how much people's lives got affected by this and it just makes you feel for people who are so, like you see like they cause other people to suffer but then they suffer and when they're suffering it's like they they, they kind of feel like they deserve it maybe mm-hmm. and that's you know important to see but it's definitely more an emotional connection that you feel uh, with everyone involved versus just like abstract political ideals. Um, I really loved it. I thought it was full of heart. I, I congratulate him. That's a really tough movie to pull off. We, I think he did a great job. Well, yeah, I mean, the Holocaust in general is not an easy subject to write about or, or yeah. read about or make a movie about. Yeah. You know, we see plenty of movies. You know, Schindler's List comes to mind. Uh, the Boy in the Striped mm-hmm. Pajamas comes to mind. Those are pure yeah. dramas. Um, but this movie, you know, I, I think maybe approaching it, I think there's something to be said for for approaching it in a sort of comedic angle because maybe yeah. you can draw, you know, not everyone wants to sit through a slog of a film about the Holocaust. People, Nobody wants to watch persecution or some people don't want to watch persecution for two hours straight. So maybe this is a way that you can get people into learning about the Holocaust but doing it in maybe a more, um, I don't know, easier to digest way. Is that fair? Um... I don't know. Like I don't. I get what I get what you're saying, but I just I don't really think that's what this movie's about. Okay. I think it's about something different. I think it's about like appreciating, um, like just appreciating people's humanity at a, at its flawed level and being able to like love people in spite of how ludicrously silly then and hurtful they can be. Right. Well, that goes back to something I'm going to talk about later. Another film is humans aren't just black and white. There, mm. there's definitely a, a different levels and layers to humans. Yeah. And and as much as we, as Americans, we look down on Nazis and, and Germany during World War Two. Sure. The, sure. the reality is, not everyone was bad. Not everyone was Hitler. Not everyone supported Hitler. So I mean, there was probably you know, I don't know. I haven't seen the movies, but maybe it provides mm. a glimpse into the other side of things a little bit. I don't know. The movie made me wondering, like, is is the answer to changing people's minds to love them until they see that they're wrong? Like, that is really what I would say the heart of it's about. Like, can can you love someone enough to the point where they'll realize, like, oh, like, hate is wrong. Like, the way this person's treating me is the way to go. That's kind of what I walked away from the movie feeling. But, you know, not everyone's going to, like, walk away with the way I thought. But I thought it was a very funny movie. Okay. I, I really was impressed by it. I enjoyed it. What would you give it out of ten? Oh, um, we do this. Okay, let's sell. I this know right you now. do your letters. How do, we, how do you want to grade stuff? You want to do the ten because right. that's how we do it. That's how we've been doing. I use IMDb. I give it an A minus. Okay, so what's that like? An eight? Eight point five? Yeah, it depends. Yeah, are we talking private? School? We're talking public school or private school? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's let's get let's get pretentious like that. Yeah. Um, no, uh, I'll give it a I'll give it a ninety. 95, yeah. Wow. So definitely, definite recommend. That's Jojo <laughs> Rabbit. Very sweet movie, yeah. Yeah, that's that's Jojo Rabbit. Uh, just came out uh, a few weeks ago, I think, or in, in October, actually. So Yeah, ge- uh, genuinely made me laugh, too. Okay. Like, movies don't always make me laugh out loud as much. Even though, like, I'm sitting there and I'm like, hmm, this is hilarious. But I just won't actually start laughing out loud at them. This one, a couple times, I was just busting out laughing. Cool. That's a good review from Mike Nichols on Jojo Rabbit. All right, so moving on to a film that isn't really funny at all, although it does have its moments, uh, is a film called The Lighthouse. And this is a movie I've been looking forward to for a very long time, pretty much since it was announced. This movie is directed by Robert Eggers, who made his debut with a film called The Witch in 2015. This movie stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson as two lighthouse keepers. The plot somewhere on IMDb. Two lighthouse keepers try to maintain their sanity while living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. As I said, this is a movie co-written by Robert Eggers and his brother Max Eggers. This is a movie I've been looking forward to uh, because I absolutely love The Witch. Uh, I think way back when in the early stages of this podcast, we uh, reviewed our favorite horror films since 1990, and The Witch made an appearance. And I wouldn't call this film explicitly horror Uh, But it is very unsettling. The first thing you need to know about this film is it's shot in a unique 
um, film aspect ratio. Um, it's shot in uh, with 35 millimeter film. It's black and white. So when you go to the theater and you're watching it on the big screen, in other words, the outsides of the screen are just black. It looks like you're watching an old movie from, you know, way back when in the early days of film. That's cool. And that helps to create the 19th century aesthetic that it's set yeah. in. It helps to add to the mood of the film. Um, and because you have these huge black bars on either side of the screen, it almost feels like things are being hidden from the audience as you're thrust into the world of these two lighthouse keepers. Um, the performances in this are amazing. I expect especially Willem Dafoe uh, to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor, although Pattinson is really good as well. Um, Dafoe plays sort of this grizzled veteran lighthouse keeper who's constantly barking out orders. He speaks like this old sea dog and like, I lad, and he seems like he's perfectly at home in the lighthouse. He goes on these, throughout the filming, he loses his mind and goes on like these crazy rants like reciting old sea texts and praising Neptune and cursing the seven seas upon rotten Robert Pattinson when he pisses him off. It, it sort of reminded me when Willem Dafoe would go off on these rants of like some old 50s epic or religious film, like the Ten Commandments. Like okay. it's, like it's yeah. Charlton Heston on, you know, yeah. on Mount Sinai, like yeah. just speaking down to his commandments and the way he delivers these monologues, especially with the camera angles that are in this film, because... Whenever, like, uh, uh, Willem Dafoe will go off, like, on something, they'll shoot, uh, like, from below. So it almost looks like one character is just towering over the other one. And their shadow shows up on, like, a wall behind them that really just gives them this added ferocity when they're going at each other. It's it's really impressive uh, camera work and stuff. The, the film is exquisitely shot. It's a very purposeful... Um, dark creative way to create a really specific mood in this mm -hmm. film uh eggers and his cinematography team they absolutely nail it this film is called the lighthouse and the light in this movie represented by the old thermal light up at the top it's almost like a godlike presence in this movie it's it's the only beacon of hope in the darkness for these isolated lighthouse keepers on this rock um and it's really, really cool to watch because when it's daytime, the daylight scenes for Robert Pattinson's character, Ephraim, um, pretty much throughout the entire film, whenever it's daytime, he's doing like these brutal tasks. He's, he's, he's hauling oil up hundreds of steps to light the lanterns. He's cleaning out chamber pots. He's hanging off the side of the lighthouse, you know, painting the side of it. He's carrying water on rocks with waves and wind and, and rain blasting him in the face. Like every daytime scene... It's just miserable for Robert Pattinson. And then when it's nighttime, it's just darkness, except for the light. Mm -hmm. So in this movie, the light is life. It's the savior from the darkness. And in the movie, we see that Robert Pattinson is given all these mundane tasks to do, while William Defoe stays up all night and maintains the light. But he doesn't let Robert Pattinson up there. So in a sense, mm -hmm. Robert Pattinson is being kept from the light while Willem Dafoe stays up there, and it's how he sort of remains sane. You know, we see him uh, throughout the film at night. He's naked, almost sort of worshipping the godlike light at the top of the lighthouse. He's, he's, he lets it shine over him. He even says in the film, that light has been a better wife to me than any woman could be. And so, so this film is built around the idea that the light in the darkness is the god. The light of the lighthouse runs everything it, it, it's the only light in their existence and that's sort of where this film you know sets up and takes off from so you can imagine how that idea combined with this black and white aesthetic and darkness all around and these two grizzled characters talking in like this old sea dialect could really leave the audience unsettled so to speak so Robert Eggers, have you seen The Witch? Have you heard about this movie? Are you interested in seeing this movie? What What do you know about this? I I know that when I Googled it, the first thing that came up was the lighthouse mermaid vagina scene explained. <laughs> and that kind of uh, took me by surprise. Um, yeah, I, I am not a huge fan of horror movies. Uh, sorry to everyone listening. I just, I'm, I'm kind of a big wimp. I don't, I don't like watching horror movies. <clears throat> And so I have not seen The Witch, although I, like all my friends who saw it just adored it. And I've heard nothing but I've actually heard nothing but good things about this movie too. 
But uh, I've heard this movie is a bit trippy at some points. So, for <clears throat> example, uh, the mermaid vagina scene. What is that about? So that that's a complicated okay. uh, aspect of the film. There's a mer- there's mermaids in this movie. There are mermaids on screen. We don't know if there's explicitly actually mermaids in the movie because they could they're very well could be just in Robert Pattinson's mind. So okay. Robert Pattinson, as I said, him and Willem Dafoe are both these zany, crazy guys who are stuck in these close quarters yeah. that are forced to live together. And but, but it's the, not like and zany th- in a funny way. It's no, 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 no. Like no. A, it's, okay, it's, it's, it's kind of unsettling. Yeah, and, and, and no. So, so throughout the film, we don't know who to root for. Because huh. both these guys are questionably crazy. You know, we got one of them that's naked with a light up top. We got one that is envisioning mermaids and sea creatures. And he's... He's got this little mermaid figurine that he masturbates to, so it's it's very Wait, what? Yeah, there's not. It's not explicitly in his head. It is sorry. It is explicitly. How, how in his explicit head. is this movie? Like parents couldn't take their kids. No, hell no. It's, okay. Hell no. No, no. This is for film geeks who want to have a sort of psychological experience because the mermaid isn't real. At least that's the way I interpret it. It's in Robert Pattinson's head because he's sexually frustrated. He's stuck with this guy. And that's one way he tries to remain sane because like I said, he doesn't get the benefits of the light. So this movie at its core is um, I think a movie about humans. It's about the duality of humans. So this movie, as I said, is shot in black and white, which I think is ironic because duet, the duality of humans, humans aren't black and white. And throughout the film, we see both um, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson operate in a gray moral area. Mm. So it's sort of ironic oh, that it's filmed in, in black area. and white. How and symbolic. It is, and I think that's very purposeful. We're not sure, sure. who the crazy yeah. one is. We're not sure who to root for. You know, the film uses the light and darkness of a man. It, it symbolizes duality. I think that's symbolized by the lights and shadows on their faces. Oftentimes in this film, we'll have a character where one side is in darkness, one side is in light. Um, you know, we have uh, the rooms and spaces around them are dimly lit because in darkness, all they have is lanterns. So I think there's some really uh, specific commentary on the duality of humans and how there's good and bad and how we don't really know who to root for. By the end of this movie, uh, Ephraim, played by Robert Pattinson, um, you know, the, the confrontation between him and Defoe comes to a head. He ends up disposing of Willem Defoe and thus finally gets his chance at embracing the godlike light at the top of the lighthouse. Hmm. He goes to the top of the light and finally gets it and is embraced by it, but because he got it in a sort of, um, shall we say, um, morally corrupt way, right. he ends up opening the light at the top of the lighthouse, it shines brightly in his face, and then he falls backwards down the entire flight of stairs of the lighthouse. And then the last scene of the film we see is Robert Pattinson laying on the rocks naked while gulls eat his intestines in his eyeball. And yes, that's horrific imagery, but I think it goes along with this theme of because he attained the light, because he attained the godlike presence in an unnatural and sinful way, yeah. he was punished by the light, by the godlike presence, mm-hmm. to uh, eternally be damned on the rocks and eaten by gulls. And that is also foreshadowed in the beginning of the film, where Robert Pattinson has numerous encounters with a one-eyed gull. And uh, hmm. Willem Dafoe tells him time and time again, don't kill the gulls, it's bad luck. He ends up killing one of the gulls. So... It all comes back to this idea of morality, the duality of humans, how we behave, how we pay for the things that we do, and uh, really it's just kind of a mind trip film about two guys that just lose their marbles so it's on like, a big godforsaken rock. It's it's like the black and white version of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where uh, they finally I, get the Ark, and then I would say that the it's, Ark's Lytle kills them. I would say that it's much more uh, crazy than Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> it's much more of a film that is kind of a slog to get through. It's not fun to watch. It's really not. <laughs> Uh, but it, it, but it, Sorry about that, Robert. Your no, movie's not fun to watch. It's not fun to watch, and neither is The Witch. But if you're a film lover, you can have appreciation for the filmmaking aspect and what's being done in this right. movie. I have, I have two questions. These are very serious questions about this film. Okay. How will Twilight fans feel? Uh, I don't think any Twilight fans will want to watch this. <laughs> really? Yeah. No. They will not want to see a sexualized Robert Pattinson. It's not that sexualized. It's it's a gross <laughs> sexual. It's not. Okay. Secondly, um, 
Do you think this is going to win anything? Yes. Like, would you put this up for, like, an Oscar? Would you put this uh, up? Willem Dafoe, 100%, should be nominated in Best Supporting Actor, for sure. Okay. I think it could be up for some cinematography awards. Um, yeah, that, that seems like it really hit you, how, like, beautiful this movie is. Oh, yeah, like because it. it's yeah. done in such a specific way, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so those will be the two, I think, that more that it's probably a front runner in. Oh, I will say there's, much like The Witch, where they speak in this old Puritan, old English, it's kind of hard to understand. And this one, they speak in this sort of old sea dog new england sailor dialect so sometimes it's kind of hard to tell you really have to pay attention when it's doing it overall though i think it's just a fantastic example of how cinema can be powerful with limited resources and budget by just having fantastic writing extraordinary performances lighting music and cinematography and for that reason i gave this film an 8.5 out of 10 all right, moving on to the back half of the show, we're going to have a couple films that you can watch on Netflix right now. And the first one is a film that Mike has seen. It's a historical drama film uh, called The King. Uh, this movie is directed by David Michaud. Uh, that was, I'm just winging it there. But it stars uh, Timothy Chalamet in the title role and also features an ensemble cast of Joel Edgerton, Sean Harris, Lily Rose Depp, Robert Pattinson, whoa, Edwards here again, and Ben Mendelsohn, the plot summary on IMDb, Hal, wayward prince and heir to the English throne, is crowned <laughs> King Henry V the, the, the what? after his tyrannical father dies. Now the young king must navigate palace politics, the war his father left behind, and emotional strings of his past life. That's the English throne, yeah. Mike. Yeah, the as, English. as William Wallace would call it. The English! The English. They don't stand like in the English. Right. Right. It's a wee bit of rain. <laughs> it's about a wee shower. Okay, what's, what, what, tell us about the king. All right, let, let me just first ask you. Have you ever uh, seen or read Shakespeare's Henry V, the play? I have not, and okay. I have no desire to. They made me read Shakespeare in high school, and I can't do it. It's just, it's too thick for me. Okay, well, here's the thing, my friend. I am kind of a Henry V nerd. Oh. I have way too much knowledge and love for this play. I would say Henry V is not only probably my favorite Shakespeare play, I would say it is probably my favorite play ever. Um, I got a lot of love from this uh, story when I was a kid. My dad introduced me to Kenneth Branagh's Henry V film that came out in 1989, and it's still considered maybe the best Shakespearean film adaptation ever. Um, I watched that movie endlessly as a kid, so much where I could actually memorize the famous speech of Crispin. And one time, uh, the, the first time I ever auditioned for a play in my life was in college. I just walked in. I didn't know we had to have a monologue or anything prepared. And, like, the director was like, oh, can you, like, say anything? Like, do you have any? I was like, oh, I didn't know. So, well, do you know anything? I was like, oh, actually, I know the end of the fifth speech. And she was blown away. She was like, no way. No one, no one knows that speech. No one could be that nerdy. To not be a theater kid and just know the Henry V speech. She had not met me. I did the speech. I got the lead in the play. <laughs> um, true story. So I'm a huge Henry V nerd. So I want to apologize to everyone who's going to watch this movie, who's not as obsessed with this as I am, because you're probably going to watch it, and you're probably going to see a medieval movie about a young man who kind of reluctantly becomes the king and doesn't really want to get involved in a war. Never seen that movie before. Leads his people to victory and against overwhelming odds, and you're like, that's fine. Like that's a that's a nice movie. It's it's you know it has some good battle scenes in it. I think Til Timothy Chalamet is a great actor. Um, Robert Pattinson plays a very uh, kind of hilariously entertaining douchey French uh, French prince. But do we get any mermaid sex scenes? Is what I want to know. I, I really don't want to give away uh, what Shakespeare did with it. But, okay. yeah. No, there's no more sex. Um, but yeah, like you'll just see it, and you, you might think it's a fine movie. A lot of people saw this movie, just and they didn't really know about Henry V. They're not familiar with, one, the history of the real character. They're not really familiar with the Shakespeare play. Um, and they just saw the movie and enjoyed it. This film is a very specific kind of movie, because this is not actually a historical adaptation of the real story of Henry V, the real king, nor is it actually them doing Shakespeare's Henry V. It is a adaptation of Shakespeare's Henry V that does not do Shakespeare. So it follows like kind of the plot points of Shakespeare's version of Henry V, which was also which is kind of like itself like a very fictionalized adaptation, but it doesn't actually do what Shakespeare did with it either. 
So now we're in an adaptation of an adaptation territory. Wow. So it's kind of a weird way to like even go about like telling a movie or I'm sorry, telling a movie. Sorry. I can't talk. Um, I shouldn't be doing a podcast uh, <laughs> about like, you know, a, like trying to approach a film, but I really, Mrs. Me as a person, I really don't appreciate things that try to do revisionist adaptations of things that are already beloved, have good source material and they just like take it and they do something that really has to twist it a lot to try to like make it interesting. Yeah, to to try to like show, well see, they weren't all really that good. Mm-hmm. Like it'd be like if someone did like a Harry Potter movie where Harry is like, you know, spoiled and bad and like, you know, Malfoy's actually and, and like the you know, the hero and the underdog and stuff and it's like, yeah, because the real Harry Potter really did it's like, well, like, you know, you had to change the facts of the story to try to push this new, very revisionist version of this tale mm-hmm. that isn't in the original stuff. So they have to do that kind of a lot in Henry V. They have to suddenly, like, make him and his brother have this conflict that they didn't, one, have in real life, really, and two, they don't really have in the play Henry V. They have to, like, make this kid be really, oh, I never want anyone to die. I never want anyone to, like, fight. Which really isn't who he is in the play or in real life. They have to conjure up a whole like assassination plot line till they try to force. So they have to change the story so much to try to fit this kind of new version they want to tell, which frankly doesn't really tell anything more interesting than what Shakespeare actually did with the story. Um, the dialogue is not as interesting as Shakespeare's dialogue. Um, the character is, you know, he doesn't really have motivation. It's like, what does he really want? Why does he want it? We don't really know. We just know that he doesn't want to be that kind of king. Like, okay, well, why? Well, what kind of king do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Like, what Like, what actual things do you want to work on? And how do you want to work on them? Let's see this kid demonstrate those kind of prowesses. We don't really see a lot of it. Um, what they do well is, um, you know, for the m- most part, they, they get a lot of the Battle of Ashencore um, strategically kind of right, although there's a lot they miss. Um, I will admit, I've never really seen... There, I've watched a lot of different Henry V movies. I've never actually seen a Battle of Ashencourt that's actually done like the way the battle really was. Um, I've, I've, like, if you want, there's a, there's a couple great... Um, like, hit me up, message me, like, personally, and I'll, I'll send you some, like, Battle of Ashencourt clips that, like, really kind of show the battle in a really, like... If they're, like, quick, like, 10-minute clips. You can actually watch it fall out like a nice um, video. It's really helpful. But yeah, they don't fully do the battle justice. Um, they definitely are just trying to like do Game of Thrones stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, oh, let's show them all up close wrestling in the mud, and you know it's it's a very muddy battle. But like, no one can really tell who each other is. They're all just like stabbing, and they have this really dumb, pointless fight at the end that where like the the bad guy just shows up, the battle stops, and they just wants to do a one on one fight in the middle of the field. Of course, didn't happen at all. <clears throat> like it's like, why is this the new version you want to tell? Like, why is this better than historically what happened or what Shakespeare did? Why is this suddenly more interesting? So I think when you ha- – the biggest problem that a lot of these biographical or historical films have is, one, especially if it's about a historical figure, is how do you encapsulate the person's entire life yeah. into a film and make it interesting? And two, um, when it's something that's been done so many times – how do you bring something new and interesting to the table? Yeah. Which I think is what you're saying here is, one, what was the, even the point of making this movie and changing yeah. it? And, you know, it sounds like they didn't really execute it up to your, what you would have hoped. I, I feel like Henry V... Would you have rather a... seen a straight biopic than this? Because sometimes I, I, I'm i on board with movies that take biographies, like uh, Rocket Man, for example, Elton John. Yeah. Do I think that was a perfect movie? No. But I thought it was interesting the way that they went about telling the story with through musicals and sort of with these flash forwards and these sort of side events. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Instead of having a straight biography. It sounds like this movie may have been better off just having a straight biography. I'll tell you this though, I think I think that you make a good point for because for example, you know, take a movie like um uh oh. Why am I blanking on it? Uh, what's the Freddie Mercury one that just came out? It's uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. yeah, I saw that movie. I don't know a lot about Freddie Mercury or Queen. Um, I love the music, but I, I don't know a lot about his life. I saw the movie. I was like, that was fine. I enjoyed it. But I'm like a, an average person who doesn't know much about it. The average person who doesn't know much about Henry V will probably just enjoy this movie for what it's like. Oh, yeah, it's a good medieval like fight movie. Yeah, it's got some 
cool music and some nice scenes and um yeah it's fine but i gotta tell you guys if you actually read the play and you actually like do a little bit of history on the battle of ashcor and then please go watch henry v by kenneth branagh go watch the 1989 version it's one of my favorite movies of all time i promise you you'll see there was a better story you could have got that was just not what they delivered on you got you got an okay movie about great content how is Chalamet as a sort of, I don't want to say action-adventure, but it is kind of an adventure historical film? Because he's usually playing these sort of yeah. subdued, you know, like, um, you know, fragile roles. Like, how, how is he in this role? Does it work? Subdued and fragile. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, he's, he's he seems like a, a good actor. I've, everything I've seen him in, I thought he did a fine job. He doesn't do a bad job in this. He makes it his own, but... I just don't care for the direction of a more somber, like, I don't really want to fight kind of king. That's not, it's not actually very inspiring, which is kind of the whole point of Henry V is that it's an inspiring story about a very complicated issue. And the, I'll, I'll tell you this. Here, usually, if you're a good Henry V, it kind of comes down to the, the Battle of Ashencourt and the speech he gives before called the, the Famous Speech of Crispin. So in Shakespeare, this is probably one of the most famous speeches Shakespeare ever wrote. It's considered like the ultimate rally before a battle speech. Like you'll see a ton of movies borrow from this speech. That speech, the speech of Crispin, is so amazing and powerful and inspiring. Like he basically gets the guys to realize, look, we're outnumbered five to one and you guys are all like tired and hungry. And like, I know this isn't like, you know, you'd all, you all would rather more guys were here. If anyone wants to leave, go ahead. Like, I won't blame you, I won't judge you, I won't stop you. But the reason, like, we want to stay is, one, the well, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. Like, this is going to be way more epic when we win. And I know we're going to win, guys. And he basically just inspires them to realize that, they that you know, he loves them and that they're brothers and that one day people are going to talk about, like, this, that they're going to be remembered, that this matters, that this is going to leave a legacy. And that he calls them, it's where the famous line comes, like, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. That's from that line is from this speech, and like the king calling his men his brothers. Mm-hmm. For he today who sheds his blood with me will be my brother. Like this is this is brotherhood. This is him inspiring his men. This is this is why he was Prince Hal, so that they would know that he is one of the guys, you know. And when when the king who's been hanging out with everyone in the bar, when he's finally the king, says that to the men, and he's ready to fight in the mud with them, you know he means it. The speech that this kid gives in this movie, he literally starts it out with like this kind of like annoyed, you would expect a speech of me? Yeah. Like that's how he starts it. Like, I don't want to, I'm above this. I don't want to do this. Not, exa- then, not exactly uh, yeah. Mel Gibson for freedom no. in front of a... I'm going to be honest, I'd have a hard time following a guy named Hal anyways, if I'm being honest. His but... name is Henry. Okay, he, sorry. He was Hal when he's the prince. When he's Henry, okay. when he's king, he's Henry. But, All right, so what, yeah. what are you giving him? What grade are you giving this one? Um, I know, by the way, I know a lot of other Shakespeare, uh, theater talent in town. They did not like the movie either. Uh, but I'll let them speak for themselves. But yeah, Shakespeare people were not very impressed by this movie. I would give it a C plus. All right. There you go. C plus. We're going to have to figure out, we're going to have to reach a happy medium on this rating system here, but we'll talk about that later. Anyways, that's the King. It's on Netflix. You can go check it out. Let us know what you think. All right, moving on from one kind of king to uh, the former king of the crystal meth trade in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the mid-2000s. Just kidding, scratch that. Yeah, bitch! It is El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. This film stars Aaron Paul reprising his role as Jesse Pinkman. We also get a lot of cameo appearances um, from actors that were in Breaking Bad, such as Jonathan Banks, Jesse Plemons... Um, Brian Cranston, of course, and others. The plot summary on IMDb, a sequel of sorts to Breaking Bad following Jesse Pinkman after the events captured in the finale of Breaking Bad. Jesse is now on the run as a massive police manhunt for him is in operation. This film was directed and written by Vince Gilligan, who of course created Breaking Bad and, uh, uh, it's spinoff Better Call Saul. Um... Breaking Bad, personally for me, I think is in my unquestioned top two uh, favorite series of all time. I think it would be between that and Game of Thrones. Yeah. I'd probably give a slight edge to Game of Thrones. Um, lots to talk about with this movie. Me and Mike both saw this one, so I'll have a little bit more back and forth going on. But before we get into the movie and some of my thoughts, I want to ask you, Mike, 
was one was there a need for a Breaking Bad movie? Um, and in other words, did we need to know what happened to Jesse Pinkman after the series? Because I'm not gonna lie, I was a little nervous because to me, I felt Breaking Bad was a perfect series. So yeah. adding on to it, I was a little bit apprehensive going in. So uh, are you okay with this movie being made? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now that I've seen the final results, I like you. Also, think Breaking Bad was essentially a perfect show. I love that show. Um, I, I didn't understand like, oh wait, why are they doing this? What if they ruin it? But that, you know, it's these guys are, are great, and they didn't ruin it. Um, so yeah, I'm super happy we had this movie. Um, I think it does a really great job of not necessarily being like that kind of rich, like like heavy like uh, drink that Breaking Bad is. But it's the night. It's the nice uh, sherry. It's the nice dessert wine afterwards, just to kind of round the night off for you, so to speak. For sure, I think it. Yeah. I think that Gilligan, you know, he knew that the fans wanted to know what happened to Jesse because the last time we see him, he's driving off, yeah. just busting through the gate, laughing maniacally as he survived this ordeal. Yeah, I think that the fans probably he knew that the fans wanted to know. Okay, well, what happens to Jesse now? And Aaron Paul is, of course, the the driving force of this entire show. Um, he was great as Jesse Pinkman in the show. I think his performance is solid. It, it's a very reserved, tortured, subdued style of acting, which makes sense considering all you know that he's been through as a character. But what I find impressive is that he was able to just sort of jump back into this role and sort of portray that all those feelings have come back. Because we have to remember, it's been six years since Breaking Bad ended, the finale. And while Aaron Paul is a working actor, you know, he's obviously in things. This is obviously his iconic role. And yeah. I thought his performance was really, really, really good in this movie. I mean, he's in basically every scene. Yeah, he is, dominates the movie, and I have nothing but praise for Aaron Paul. Um, he's not only done a great job as Jesse, but, uh, you know, the way he was able to just jump back in and revisit this character, like, so many years later. Now that he's, like, kind of older than the character, it just such a wonderful job. Um, playing in between the way the film does, which is it, it kind of follows both like Jesse right after he's escaped and he meets up with like Skinny Pete and Badger and is trying to like figure out what to do next, how to avoid the police, where he can go next, and then um, cutting back to when Jesse Flashback. was yeah. in the you know essential hell mm -hmm. that he was locked into with the the guys. And, you get more uh, story from what yeah. we saw in the season five. I think yeah, you start to see what happened to him when he mm -hmm. was locked up like that. You see uh, Todd taking him out on a little day trip, and you see uh, them figuring out like you know. How to how to lock him up better, and they force him to like you know walk around in the chains. It's so hard to watch, man. Oh, yeah. One of the hardest things for me to watch in Breaking Bad was Jesse's captivity at the end of the show. Like it's it it's so hard for me to watch that. Like I hate it. It makes me so uncomfortable. I, I mean, it's great writing. I love. I, I'm not criticizing the writing. I just mean, oh, it's heavy. It hurts to watch. I don't like to see these pleasant. characters, but they do a great job of bringing that back and making you realize what a horrible helpless position jesse was in i also i um, forgot how amazing todd was played by jesse uh, clemens, clemens as a awesome. character yeah he's always playing fucking weirdos in movies but like how he can go from like just so pleasant and cordial to menacing and evil in an instant it's yeah. like incredible to watch like we see this all in the show we saw it in the show but now this movie gives him more of a chance to showcase like the matter of fact way that he just like Hey Jesse, you awake? And he he like helps him put his station wagon top yeah, on his car, yeah. and without telling him why. And then Combs he goes his hair. Yeah, like, he goes oh, he man. goes to his uh, house, and there's just a dead cleaning lady. And he's like, "You want soup?" And there's just like a dead cleaning lady on the carpet. When he's listening to fucking Doctor Hook waving his hand in the wind, like giving the blowhorn to the uh, to the truck while Jesse's in the trunk with a dead lady. That like, was, I think like, that was improvised. It I has, think he like, improvised but, but that, just actually. the way that he is, like, so nonchalantly yeah. evil yeah. is crazy. It's it's per it's perfect, honestly. Don't I'm glad we got to see more of it. Yeah. Don't forget that Jesse Plemons has such range, too. Like, like I remember first seeing him in the amazing show, Friday Night Lights, where he plays that, you know, like, funny little punk kid Landry, and then he goes on to do, like, you know, Breaking Bad, where he's this, you know, terrifyingly normal psychopath. And I guess it's terrifying. And then he's in, like, you know, something like Black Mirror, uh, like, in that amazing Star Trek episode. Mm -hmm. So, like, this guy's got such reigns. I love Jesse Plemons. He's an amazing actor. A movie we reviewed 
in the early days of this podcast was Game Night with Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams came out earlier this year. Oh, okay. He plays like this creepy next door neighbor that's never invited to the game night because he's just fucking weird. Like oh. he, he just has a knack for being that weird guy, though. He oh, really. Okay. I'm not oh. saying he doesn't have range, but he does have. A, it does seem like he gets cast in these weird sort of like just off-putting roles off from a lot of times. One thing I will say, because you asked, like, you know, did they need to make this movie? Like, Game of... Or, sorry, Breaking Bad... <laughs> Breaking Bad gave you, uh, fi- like, finality with its ending. I don't, I don't know why, for some reason, I thought of Game of Thrones when I was thinking about finality with an ending, because that show <laughs> didn't have it. But, um, yeah, uh, they gave you finality. Like, here's what happened to the characters. Here's where they end up. With Jesse, you know, he's going to survive and be okay, I guess, essentially. But this gives you, like, just the certainty of that. Like... You see Jesse finally, like, you know, he's escaped at the end. Uh-huh. But this shows you the next step is that Jesse learns all his, like, smarts and one step ahead and cleverness from Walter. And yet he has Mike's courage and confidence. And then he still keeps, like, Jesse's kind of sweetheart that he always had. And all three of those are combined to kind of make him into. Like, what is now, frankly, an amazing bona fide badass. Like, I, I could watch a million more movies about Je- Jesse Pinkman and the guy he is now. Because you think about it, you've just set up the backstory to create one of the most incredible action, like, hero characters ever. Like, he could just go on being, like, essentially he could be a new type of character who's like Omar from The Wire. He's almost like a kind of, like, modern-day Robin Hood who just, like, goes after drug dealers. Like, that's almost who Jesse... Pinkman now could become well, in yeah. his new I mean, life. I, I think he could go anywhere and be this amazing character. I think what we're led to believe at the end of this, and we see it in the final shot, is that Jesse was almost sort of like a victim in the entire thing that happened. Because Kinda, yeah. Because Walter White's the one him, who roped him into this. Walter was the one calling the shots for the most part. Walter was the one convincing him to do things. And I'm not saying Jesse is blameless. He was already kind of a screw-up to begin with. But he never wanted to be, he never expected to be drawn into this crazy world of drug dealing and, and the torment that he got and i love that the last shot of the finale we got was him sort of driving away laughing maniacally and the last shot of this film we get is him driving off but it's sort of in a sort of settled content pondering look with almost like a small wry smile on his face almost like he's he's content now he knows that he's going to be okay he knows that he's going to move on with his life and do live this life in Alaska. So it almost is like a happy ending for Jesse. Yeah, and the callbacks are very appropriate, too, that mm-hmm. they do. There's nothing that's just done to be gratuitous. Like, all of it has meaning. All of it is very measured. Um, I, I didn't good. I didn't expect this. I will say, though, I didn't expect this to be such a self-contained story. I guess I thought it would be more, like, sweeping and wide-ranging. Like, maybe we'd be following Jesse all over the place or, like, yeah. to Mexico as people were chasing him around. This, the movie almost actually reminded me of sort of like the first few episodes of Breaking Bad, which were such yeah. a really like methodical pace and just sort of followed Walt and Jesse around as they figured out how to dispose of the guy in the basement mm-hmm. and how they figured out how to just start this drug empire and cook. and it, it, It's such a methodical story. I thought it would be much more sweeping and wide-ranging. I was surprised by how small the story was. It really was just about Jesse. It stayed true to the heart of what Breaking Bad was always about. Good characters. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, I give that an A. I think that was a great win. I'm happy for them that they got to, you know, not only like end that story again in a positive way, but also reconnect with each other. I, you and, know, and that also cast to, loves each other. Yeah, and, and also to reconnect with the cast. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we got we got cool cameos by just about everyone. You know, we got Mike yeah. in the very beginning. Yeah. We got you know we got to see Walter White come back with the scene in the diner, and it was fun to see sort of. Um, you know, just just Walt and Jesse, sort of yeah. harmless, friendly, almost father and son like bickering that we got in the early part of the series before they started hating each other. You know, like, right. yeah. this, Walter doesn't even remember that he got his GED. Like, yeah, it was just fun to see sort of like flashbacks to you know, sort of the better times, so yeah. to speak. And he's asking Jesse about going to college. Yeah. yeah, it's a yeah. So Walter White is in it, but it's in a flashback that's never been seen. It's it's like that moment after they just got back from cooking and they've stopped at the diner to get some breakfast. Mm-hmm. So it's a very it's a very tasteful way to to do Walter right. White. You mentioned Skinny Pete and Badger. They yeah, have a, they have a great. fun little scene. We yeah, have yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Robert Forrester in his final film role. He actually died the day this film was released. Oh, did he? Um, which is yeah, and oh, he's the he plays the the disappear. In the vacuum shop. Yeah, that's too Takes bad. Jesse to Haynes, which actually I've scene. been to Haynes. It's right by Skagway where my sister worked. And it's in southeast Alaska. If you want to disappear, you might want to go a little bit more north so, into Alaska. But, so, so true but, story. I've actually been to the 
Walter White house where they filmed it that where they threw the pizza on the roof I've been to that house uh when I was going uh well with my dad the Grand Canyon we stopped in New Mexico and like we found the house on GPS and we just like drove past it I I didn't like walk onto the property I kind of like went like you know like four houses up and just took a picture but uh yeah we love Breaking Bad I'm so happy that this movie really ended it in uh, a really happy note yeah I liked it too I give it an 8.5 out of 10 and I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I do a nine-point scale, so uh, that's pretty much almost perfect for me. I, I really enjoyed watching the movie. I thought it did some really good justice. It's called El Camino. Camino is obviously means in uh, Spanish, like, path, a way, a road, a journey. That's what Camino means, and of course he also drives in El Camino yeah, yeah, in the, the car, beginning, yeah. so there's kind of a dual, double meaning there. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad we got to see Jesse sort of ride off into the su- uh, sunset, so to speak. We got that closure we were looking for, um, and I think most Breaking Bad fans have responded positively to this uh, show, or movie. So that's all we got here today in the Second Day Film Podcast, Mike. Appreciate you joining us here today. We look forward to several future episodes. I look forward to not only talking more films with you, but just bringing up old movies that I like that I know no one has ever seen and will probably never watch. But I finally have an avenue to dump all my crazy and weird nerdy thoughts on the world now. Hey, thanks, thanks, champ, for yeah, what that, you've unleashed, Hey, buddy. Th- that's what we're here for, and I think our listeners are okay with that nerdy stuff. So don't under- underestimate our audience. we got a lot of film lovers that uh, like to delve back in the files of film, and as, our, uh, you know, as I've always said, this is sort of a, a way to bring attention to old movies that maybe have been overlooked. So like us on Facebook at the Second Day Film Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Second Day Film. Uh, Instagram is the Second Day Film Podcast. Check out our old episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, and we appreciate everyone who's listened so far. We appreciate all the support, and we look to continue delivering good content in the future. So, for Mike Nichols, until next time, I'm your host, Brandon Champion, and we'll see you at the movies. <laughs>